Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. We hope you all enjoyed our vacation. <laughs> I'm quite sure that they enjoyed the silence of the airwaves from our vacation. <laughs> we enjoyed our vacation. Well, that was very important that we enjoyed our vacation. If you want to see photos of our vacation, you need to be friends with us on Facebook. Yes. Um, but that means we have to know you. And since right. there are lots of folks out there who don't necessarily know us, yeah. Well, we could put a small selection up on the bloke and the bird side. Th that's something we'll look to do. But anyway, we had fun. We're back. And just in time to get to watch Monaco's race a week late. Well, before we get to that, we got some other stuff before we get to that. And, and I should also mention, we will probably end up talking about um, the vacation and the review of a couple of things later on in the season. Yes, because we, there will be times where there's not races. Well, there's that. You know, we've got the review of the trip, the review of the ship. Um, we had some uh, new items in the Blokenberg test lab that came along with us that were worth noting. But we'll get to them later in the season. So before we get to Monica, because we were gone for Monaco. We did manage to get to see it. We watched it on the plane with one of the items from our test lab. I know. We watched it on the plane on our flight back from Seattle to Cleveland. It was a heck of a race. But we've got some other stuff before that. So backing before up, we're we going into the Wayback Machine to go back in time to before Monica. Well, no, but just before we start talking about Monica. Oh, so it's just random pieces before. Yeah, Monica. there's some other things. The first thing I wanted to mention was um, as part of their own coverage around Monaco and some of the stuff that they that they had done. Tom Clarkson over at the BBC uh, did an interview with Ron Dennis, mm -hmm. and we don't hear directly from Ron Dennis very often. No, we hear a lot of people say Ron Dennis said. Yeah, I mean, he he does drop quotes to various sources. But rarely do we actually get to hear from him directly. And coming from Tom's interview with Ron, there was some interesting comments that Ron had. What did so, Ron say? So, so let me, let's, let's play a little of what Ron had to say. I honestly believe that the next world champions will be, after Mercedes, will be McLaren. I think we'll get, I think we'll get to that goal before other people I think it's challenging but um, uh, I have a firm belief in the technical competence of our people and a firm belief in Honda and uh, if there was any year that another team was going to defeat Mercedes-Benz it was going to be this one I think next year is going to be a very different situation 2017 regulations level the playing field and uh, it's enough time for us to, to, ca to catch up on with Honda. So I think we have a, we'll have a good chance next year and uh, we'll do everything we can to, to do it. Can we just spell that out? You think McLaren Honda will be ready to challenge for the title in 2017? I think we can, I think we can win races. I don't want to predict world championships, but I, but I do feel that uh, dethroning Mercedes-Benz is going to be a challenge for everybody, but um, I have reason to genuinely believe we'll get there before anybody else. Okay, wait a second. Let me just review a few facts. Every pundit and commentator on Formula One is talking about 
the inroads that Ferrari, the people in red, have made on Mercedes this year. Mm-hmm. We have also had a huge number of people talking about the inroads that Red Bull has made on both Ferrari and Mercedes this year. And we're, we're Are we also still talking, talking about... about the same team that well, has more points in their replacement driver than they had in at least one of their regular drivers? That 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 was only at the when they first when they got their first point. So I mean, they they quickly uh, eclipsed that. So so don't take that piece. In. Okay. However. We are talking about the team that everybody is amazed that they managed to get just one car, one car, into Q3. We're also talking about a team that's celebrating both cars finishing a race. Not even finishing necessarily in the points, but having well, both cars finish they, is an accomplishment. They've started to move past that. You, you know, you know who, who Ron Dennis really really started to remind me of after listening to this bernie no oh bluto blutarski who what over did you say over nothing is over until we decide it is was it over when the germans bombed pearl harbor hell no germans forget it he's rolling it ain't over now exactly <laughs> I just want to understand the logic here. Okay, I believe in believing in a dream. I get it. We we have goals, we have dreams. The reason we spend huge amounts of money on these teams is because we believe that they could win. But he thinks now there's a couple of different ways you can think this through. He thinks that the Mercedes dominance will continue until the point that McLaren rises like a phoenix from the ashes to defeat them. And all of these getting closer, getting closer, getting closer, and Vettel really doing well against Mercedes in the Ferrari isn't going to happen before this phoenix rise? Well... What I think Ron is, and, and I get, there is some degree that he has to do as the owner and overall leader of the team. There is some degree of cheerleading that he has to do. But there there also needs to be some kind of a level set. Because, you know, let's face it. As the cars line up or, or get ready to head out for that very first qualifying of the season in Australia— at that point, yes, every single team out there has a fighting chance of winning the championship. Not just a fighting chance, an equal chance. Yep. Until that first lap is turned and everybody looks at whatever that last place car is and goes, man, what a dog. <laughs> every single team has a fighting chance. And as the season evolves and progresses – their performance targets typically tend to evolve. Yes, you know, Manor just hopes for points, and Force India just hopes for fourth, and, you know, put it above. hopes to pay the bills. Yeah. It, it, at some point, those expectations evolve to what is truly realistic. 
Ron doesn't seem to do that. Well, he obviously uses the Field of Dreams model. If you say it, it will happen. I get. I mean, keep in mind, this was the same the same folks who were promising us that when they hit Barcelona last year, they were going to be on the podium when they couldn't figure out how to get the cars across the finish line. Right. Yeah. So, hey, moving on. Maybe podiums mean things different in Japanese. I, I don't think this is a Honda issue. Well, I was. I think this is a Ron Dennison reality issue. Okay, maybe in Ron Dennis language, the words, you know, progress and podiums mean different things. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. Only a little bit, though, because this past week, we have finally settled on the 2017 rules. And one of the, the requirements that came out of the new rules for 2017 were that. There was an op that engine manufacturers had an obligation to supply teams so that you never had a situation like Red Bull had last year where nobody wanted to give them engines and they were kind of screwed. Well, yeah, but I don't think they ever asked Honda. I don't think they wanted Honda's engine. No, they did. And Ron Dennis said, we, Honda isn't giving you an engine because apparently the engine deal that we, and we talked about this last year, the engine deal that, that, McLaren managed to get with Honda gave McLaren veto authority over any possible additional uh, teams. Ah, uh, yes, I remember that now. But so, I was not entirely convinced that Christian really wanted a Honda engine. They didn't, but they were at a point where they needed to get an engine and were going to everybody at that point. Well, now the requirement exists that the team that has the lowest number of customer teams could be obligated to supply an engine if the situation arose. Mm-hmm. Ron Dennis doesn't like this. Um, as a result, McLaren Honda have met with the FIA to discuss uh, this change in the rules, and it does not look like they are getting their way. But what Ron has said is that um, only once McLaren Honda has won the world championship – Will it think about supplying a second team? (laughs) Yeah. I got no words. Why are they so opposed to the supplying a second team? Pick up a back marker to help them do some development. Shorten the development cycle like everybody else is trying to do. Well, that would seem to make the most sense. I mean, the reality is, especially when it comes to these testing sessions, the amount of data that Honda gets from these tests is a lot less than all the other manufacturers because they're only getting that data from one car and one engine where mercedes has one car from every one of their customer teams right renault and ferrari all have one car from everyone so they're getting that much more information and they can play with different engine specs they can play with different things in these tests and collect all kinds of data and do all kinds of comparisons live and on the spot as opposed to well okay monday we're going to run this spec but tuesday we're going to run this spec meanwhile the poor engineers are going you know you guys can go get bent because we have to go spend 12 hours between sessions changing out engines right i mean it's it's craziness you think about the number of i mean 
what Mercedes has got three teams in total that run Mercedes engines. Yeah. And I think Ferrari's got three and Renault's got two. Mm-hmm. They're going to triple and double the data. Well, you really can't count Toro Rosso. Well, yeah, because they have 2015s. Right. And, and they're not getting upgrades or anything like that. So that's, that, that, that's a frozen block there. So I know you have this story, so I'm kind of hoping it's next. What is going on with Toro Rosso for next year for an engine? We'll get to that. I just I get I, I get comments from Honda on this. Okay, what is Honda? So I, I thought that was important. You know, after we hear that Ron Dennis says that you know hell's going to freeze over first. <laughs> Honda's chief Yasuki Hasegawa says it was fo- the meeting was focused on the obligation and customer supply. It is natural they, as in McLaren, don't want to divide our resources to other teams, which I agree about. They don't want to improve their rivals. Honda doesn't want to have enforced obligation. But this is a regulation, and we are happy to support this F1 activity. So Honda's willing to play by the rules. Ron Dennis, not so much. Yeah. Okay. Sort that one out. So now to get what you were looking for. We have word as to what is happening for Red Bull and Toro Rosso for 2017 and 2018 for engines. They're going back to Renault's. Really? However, what's interesting is that the way the deal has been structured is that Red Bull's negotiated contract with Renault um, will be to continue to allow them to run the engines badged as Tag Heuer's. They are not going to be running technically Renault engines. Really? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting deal to be cut. Maybe that's the bridge that they wound up burning. Yeah. Well, Christian Horner's exact words, and and I don't think that's what it is. I think there's something else here. Christian Horner's exact words were, after the reconstruction that Renault has undertaken, clear progress has been made, which has made it logical to continue with the Tag Heuer branded engine. Sponsorship dollars. That's what I think it is. Because remember, when Renault, or or excuse me, when Red Bull was the works team for Renault, they got their engines for free. Right. Now that they're not the works team, they have to pay for them. But with this deal with Tag Heuer that they have managed to negotiate, you badge it as a Tag Heuer, Tag pays for the engines. Right. So that Red, Red Bull still technically gets them for free. Because the, the tag cost is offsetting it. That makes sense. So that's my theory as to what's happening there. But they will not be running Renaults. They will be running Tag Heuer's at Red Bull only. Toro Rosso will be a Renault-powered team. Oh, okay. So they'll be straight-up Renaults. Right. Um, Christian Horner has also gone on to state that the tension that existed between Red Bull and Renault last season has led to the engine manufacturer's revival in Formula One this year. Because we had a big mouth, they're doing better. (laughs) We publicly humiliated them, so they stepped up to the plate and are supporting us now. When does that happen? I... I don't like Christian Horner very much, and I know this is not news, um, not breaking news at all, but he does not seem like a very nice person. I think he's a very smart person. Um, 
I think he's a very tactical person in his words. But I also don't necessarily think that some of the things that he said last year were necessarily his words. Mm, you think he was just a mouthpiece? Yes. Interesting. So, yeah. Red Bull says that they have pushed them along. Okay. Speaking of 2017 contracts. Yes. Because I know you have been on your edge of your seat over this. This is your favoritest topic in the whole wide world. I know. It's going to be tires. It is. Because you are excited, I know, to find out that Pirelli has finally signed off on the 2017 through 2019 tire supply contract. Okay, so is there anything in that contract that is going to make a tire softer than the Snuggle Bear tire? I don't know. All I was really interested was that they said something like that. I figured we were moving on from that. Well, basically, <laughs> at this point, all I care about is when we get the like super Snuggle Bear tire. Well, based on the comments that Lewis Hamilton had in and around Monaco to Sky Sports, he wasn't particularly impressed with the Snuggle Bear tire. No. He said it didn't degrade like he wanted it to. It, it wasn't, it wasn't sticky. It wasn't soft enough. So, hey, you never know. That's all I wanted to say on that. Also, now in negotiation, and this actually is a, a very, very big deal. Um, the teams are set to begin talks on the new commercial deals for beyond 2020. The current arrangement for management and leadership and all that with the strategy group and that ridiculous setup is only through 2020. Ah. So this is, in theory, the next version of the Concord Agreement. I doubt they're going to call it the Concord Agreement because what we're under now isn't necessarily the Concord Agreement. But this is, in theory, the next Concord Agreement. So this is our really our first big chance here recently to affect actual change in the structure and management of the FIA or the FOM? F well, in terms of Formula One, it won't be a change in FOM. FOM will still be the same. The the FIA oversight will be the same. It is how the teams govern, interact with each other, and the commercial deals between them and FOM. Okay. Um, but it's an opportunity to really make a um, legitimate change. It is. Um, judging the comments from Claire Williams, I'm not so sure that we're going to see much change. What did Miss Claire say? Well, when Claire was asked if she would like the strategy group to continue after 2020 she said falling short of knowing no one coming up with a viable alternative yeah it has pushed through some good things what's the alternative bernie has six votes john todd has six and the teams have six but they listen to us i have never experienced a case where they have just gone no and bulldozed us apart from qualifying <laughs> but that was resolved pretty quickly we did all stand up and say no and they did agree to us and I think her statement here really, really, really downplays how much of a mess and how much the teams actually were bulldozed by, by Bernie and John Todd. Yeah. I, I, but, but if what she's saying is more in lines with what the other teams are saying, not, not a whole lot's going to change. Sure. 
So we'll see what happens with that. I'm sure there will be dribs and drabs leaking out over the next. This is there's no way this is going to get settled in the next year or two. <laughs> so we're going to hear all kinds of rumors and stories about this one. Goodness, the last Concord-esque agreement wasn't signed until a year after it should have been in place, at least. Yeah. yeah. So they have until, like, 2021 at this point to figure it out. In theory. <laughs> in theory. So in the lead-up to Monaco, the FIA released their report on uh, Fernando Alonso's big crash in Australia. Oh. And... One of the the big things that came out of that report, you know, we knew the cause and all of those other things, but one of the things that came out of that report is that the FIA uh, disclosed in that report that they have made changes to the data systems that they have in the cockpit. One of the things that they had, which they have not run before, is they had a high-speed HD camera in filming the cockpit. They were filming, I guess, from in front of from in front of Fernando looking back and from behind Fernando looking forward. And this is something that's in all the, all the uh, cars. By using that footage, they were actually able to see how Fernando's head moved in the cockpit and where the impacts were made when his head hit there and estimate all kinds of different forces that were at play because they had this high-speed footage that they could slow down and review and actually understand what was happening. Okay, that's wicked cool. They're looking to make further changes. Really? (coughs) Their their push for next year regarding data gathering will be uh, biometrics. They're trialing a, they, they want to trial a system before the end of this year that will allow them to collect full biometric data. And, and normally when you think of biometrics, you're thinking of like security, the fingerprint, that kind of thing. This isn't that. This is heart rate, respiration, blood. These are those pieces of data so that should there be an incident, the minute something happens, the doc in the medical car already has that information. Oh, that's pretty cool too. Now, we already know, thanks to um, a report that Alan McNish and the BBC did about two, three years ago, um, they already get a serious amount of data in that medical car. They've got GPS tracking on all those cars. They, they know where every car is on the track at all times. And if there's an incident, the medical car instantly knows where that car is and where they need to go to respond there they can hear all the team radios so they can hear the communication between a team and the driver right away and get that you know that initial check as to the condition of the driver based on what if anything is radioed back and all that stuff so yeah this could be a really big improvement to the data that they get that's that's very cool it's a it's always cool to see them add things because if you think about it what they're adding can be added to other applications outside of Formula One. I mean, we may never have high-speed cameras in our cars to monitor our data yeah. pieces, but there are other times when that type of stuff would be useful to really understand what really happened on something. And to be able to monitor, you know, at some point, we're going to get to that point where our little Fitbits can send you know, in an emergency, send to the EMTs. Exactly. You know, our vital signs 
that would be awesomely cool. It would be like a little red button on the side of your the, the Fitbit. Fitbit detects that you're having a heart attack or something right. like that and notifies you and says, hey, do you want to call emergency services or do you have a pill or <laughs> whatever? Yeah. <clears throat> now would be a good time for you to take your nitroglycerin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that is where medical science is going to go. And I think that's pretty exciting, actually. Yeah, it could be very cool what could come out of that. And obviously, we know that any time that you can increase the information flowing to the right people, you can increase safety. And I mean, that's – you don't want to take all the risk away from Formula One, but you definitely enjoy those crazy crashes like Fernando had when you know that he walked away from well, it. Well, I think you want to change the nature of the risk. Right, have yes, the risk that you're going to crash, but not the risk that you're, you're going to die. die. There you go. Exactly. And that's the that's what I you can enjoy it. You can enjoy the the speed and you can enjoy the the fear of the crash because you know that the person will will walk away. And there's nothing as quite as relieving as watching the guy and, get out of the car. And, and and that kind of an incident should most certainly have an impact on at a minimum your race. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't be necessarily that you just nailed a, a, uh, a barrier at 200 miles an hour and you get to just turn around and, and go off again. You know, there, there needs to be an impact to the race. Right. So. It, it does actually need to end your race if you are, you know, upside down. Could they get a new car? <laughs> yeah. So that may seem to be an odd lead in to our next topic, but, but stick with me here. It's a little early this this year, but it is very clear that silly season has started. You love your silly season music. It's great music. <laughs> now, the reason why I said it's a bit of an odd lead-in to our next story, but it does fit perfectly. Because word has come out while we were on vacation that Pastor Maldonado oh. is actively talking to teams about a return to Formula One in 2017. Well, he has this big pile of PDVSA money. Well, I don't know if he does at this point. I, as a matter of fact, I'm not sure that what money he's got at this point. Because... Petey Vase is in a lot of financial trouble. The country's in – I mean, they've turned around and they've said, at least for government employees, they're on like a four-day work week to save electricity. Oh. They can't provide basic medical service. And this is a communist country that, you know, the government provides these. They can't provide basic medical services because they can't get the money for supplies anymore. Mm. Th this is a country that is truly on the edge of – at least a f complete and total financial meltdown. Ooh. Yeah. So I don't think that pastors got PD Vesa or any kind of government. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think he's got any kind of government money behind him at this point. Well, you never know. Some of the government money that's causing the meltdown could be because they're funding things that they shouldn't be funding, like pastor. But, you know, pastor has, I guess, his sales pitch to the teams he, he, he has the sales pitch. He is, he is reminding the teams that in his career, and his career is, has just been so phenomenal, 
that not once has he ever failed a team. The team has failed him. That's why he hasn't been successful. It's not because of his shortcomings. It's because the team has failed him. We have missed it. Honey, we have truly missed it. The perfect pairing for Pastor Maldonado is with the fabulous push your engine manufacturer to improve by degrading them, Christian Horner. I think Pastor Maldonado should drive for Red Bull, possibly Toro Rosso, just because, you know, there's enough seats. There's a seat issue going on at, at Red Bull. But he needs to drive for them because his philosophy of I can make a team better by denigrating them and I'm so awesome apparently is the same that um, Red Bull used last year for Renault. Yeah, I don't think that would work for a lot of reasons. Um, but Pastor's words here. He says, for most of his time in F1, he does not believe he, uh, he had a car which he could deliver consistently. I never had a car to show my talent, he said. When I was with Williams, we, run a, we won a race in 2012. was a good season. But the other two seasons were not so good. And at Lotus, it was a bit of the same. I never had a chance to be at a good level. I would like a good car. But maybe not the best car, but a car that allows me to show my potential and be in the points regularly. Dude, you're going to be lucky if you get a seat at Manor. <laughs> well, I'm sure Sauber has a third seat for him. <laughs> yeah, she, she likes to put Monisha three or have four pig, pig people bed. in two seats. Yeah, I, I think he's going to need a really, really big check again to get into Formula 1, and I don't think he's going to have that. Now, he has gone on to say that he is working on a plan B if um, F1 proves to not be a possibility for 2017. Would you like fries with that? No. Oh, I know. Wash your <clears throat> wax. No. First off, of course, you know, he, he blames Lotus for him missing out on the season this year. Oh. First thing. He says that um, when the decision came out, it was very, very, and it was game over for the season. It was February already. I was looking around a bit, and I got some good chances, but not what I wanted in terms of teams and other series. It's difficult being a winning driver here to go suffer in other series. It's what Pastor says. Those are his words, man. He says, they're looking around, and there are many interesting series in Europe and in the U.S., which is an alternative. He says... Um, He's he, looking at NASCAR. Well, he says he would favor single-seater championships like IndyCar or Formula E, or maybe uh, WEC or DTM, but he has all but ruled out NASCAR. He says, maybe NASCAR not because it's completely different started my career in Europe, and it would be difficult, but not impossible for me to go there to the U.S. and do NASCAR, as it's another type of racing. Hey. He says WEC is very interesting, and there is DTM, which is interesting. There is IndyCar, which is a single-seater car and more my style. So these three series plus Formula E are possibilities. We'll see. Well, he had said when he left <coughs> Formula One last year that he was going to continue to race somehow, some way. I'm pretty sure. 
I'm, I'm reasonably confident that I know where Pastor can get a seat. He may have to come up with his own car, but I know he can get a seat driving for Uber. <laughs> they're always looking for drivers. They're, they're calling you. He just needs but to come up with a car. it's not a single seat. That's the it, problem. It, true, it's not a single seat, but, and, and he would need to provide a car. But and then, insurance. But, but then he would not have to complain that the, it was the car's fault that he couldn't perform because he would be responsible for providing that car. True. But he'd also get reviews by the people that ride in his car with him. And when they started No, with they the- wouldn't because they'd be unconscious. <laughs> and when they'd recover, they'd have amnesia. Oh, wait, I was in a car with Pastor Maldonado? Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Oh, my. <laughs> That's so- what he's betting on. Just make sure that you still get the payment. Well, actually, it's, it's all through the Uber app. So, yeah, he can get into the wreck, knock them out, and they would forget that, that they were in the car with him. You still get paid. Yeah. It's a I win-win think, for Pastor. I think there are some Uber drivers that are in jail right now for knocking out their uh, <laughs> their passengers. Um, okay, you said silly season, so I'm assuming that's not your only story. Oh, no, not at all. So who else is looking to move or talking to somebody or opening their mouth? Well, apparently Felipe Massa has started talks for 2017. Yes. Now, a lot of the rumors that are swirling around silly season are around Felipe's seat. Because one of the rumors that is swirling is that Williams doesn't sign Felipe, but instead, and and this is one that's been gaining a lot of volume, even though he's been dodging it, the rumor has been that instead they're going to sign Jensen Button, and Jensen Button would finish out his Formula One career at Williams. Basically, he'd be bookending his career at Williams because he started at Williams. Right. He likes Williams. He gets along very well with, with Sir Frank. Mm-hmm. And that's where he came up as a promising driver. Okay. So that that's the rumor there with, with Felipe. See, but, but then Felipe, what would happen to Felipe? Would he retire? I don't know. It, well, it would depend on whether or not he had another seat. You'd have to wonder what the other options would be for Felipe. That's my concern. I mean, I like Felipe a lot as a driver. He's a good guy. He's a really good guy. But (laughs) I I don't want to miss the fact that he's an elder statesman on the F1 grid. And there's there's a point in time when you start wondering, is it time? Now, he is... You know, he's keeping up with, and it's he's going back and forth with Valtteri as to who is consistently outplacing who. So, Well, for the last year or so, Felipe's been outperforming Valtteri. Right, and that keeps... And yeah. Valtteri's contract is up as well. So there's the other possibility. Now, but I don't think that Williams would do this. But there's the other possibility that you keep Felipe and you put Williams next, or, or you put uh, Jensen next to him. But I don't think that that's something that, Williams is going to want to do. I think they're going to want to have a veteran and then a younger driver next to him. And granted, Valtteri is not really a young driver anymore. I mean, he's been with them for three years. Right. And I mean, that's kind of always been Williams' model is a veteran with a a, a younger yeah. driver. But I don't know. So some of the other discussions that are going on. First and foremost is Nico Rosberg. 
Yes, because his is up. N- Nico's deal is up, and it is known that uh, Gerhard Berger, who's his manager, is handling the negotiations. What we know is that uh, Gerhard Berger and Nico are pushing for a multi-year deal with Mercedes. What's not clear is if Mercedes is interested in a multi-year deal with Nico. Oh. Yeah. Um, Dieter Zietz this week, who is the chairman and, and CEO of the entire Daimler group, he's come out and made comments that Pascal Verline is, quote, in their future. Oh, really? Yeah. So that would be the question of, are they at this point looking to make room for Pascal? And that would then force Nico out. We've heard rumors of possibly Nico moving to Ferrari to take Kimmy's seat. Right. Yeah, but then I heard a rumor <clears throat> of um, Checo talking to Ferrari. Well, there, there's that too. There's been a rumor of Perez talking to Ferrari, although if you were listening, if you happen to have watched the Sky Sports coverage, Sky Sports and talking to Bob Fernley after Monaco, Fernley, Bob, Bob seemed to hint that a contract for Checo was very close to being signed, and that might be a multi-year deal. Hmm. So, I don't know. Well, we started this season, it's going to be the perfect storm of silly season because 75% of the seats are going to be available at the end of the well, season. Well, that, that's what I was going to get to as we get through this is, you know, we, we've already heard that, that Nico Rosberg could be tapped for that Ferrari seat. We're hearing rumblings, well, we heard last year Valtteri Bottas also. Um, like you mentioned, Sergio Perez. We've also heard talk of possibly Roman Grosjean. Mm-hmm. With that being the reason why he went to Haas in the first place is to get his foot in the door in that organization. Um, who knows what's going to happen with I that? Know. The other name that we've heard, and after the last two races, after Monaco and after Barcelona, that name has been talked about a bit more often is Daniel Ricardo, Because Daniel was obviously very clearly pissed coming out of Monaco. We'll talk about why in a little bit. I mean... Obviously, you've all seen it, but we'll talk. give our thoughts on that in a little bit. But there's been a lot of talk that, well, maybe he could, even though he is locked up in a multi-year deal for at least another year, contracts can always be bought out and have been bought out. Right, and we know that, you know, the contracts are barely worth the paper they're writing them on. Yeah. <laughs> they're just, a deal can be sold and it can be over easily. But, yeah, there's a bunch of seats that are up and a lot of people starting to figure out what the new slides are going to look like. But it's going to be a domino effect. I mean, that's the reality yeah. is once they announce who's going to take Kimmy's seat. Um, and I had heard briefly that there was talk that, well, if Kimmy keeps performing. There, there was that, too. And then we had Monaco. Yeah. Which, again, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um then, you know, there's McLaren in their situation. We know Fernando has a seat for next year. Ron Dennis has said Fernando's not going anywhere, although Fernando has said that depending on the feel of the 2017 cars will determine his future beyond 2017. Interesting. So, but we know that McLaren wants to bring up Stoffel Van Dorn. And after his performance in uh, Bahrain, we could see why. Right. But that means that Jensen's got to go somewhere. So And if he doesn't get a seat, we're looking at a retirement for him. And if he retires, Jensen, please go into commentating. That would be awesome, especially in the U.S. That would be really, 
Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that we could not, you know, we could lock David Hobbs in a closet. We'll just put a gin and tonic on the floor. <laughs> we'll lock him in a closet. You go take his spot for a day and everything would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so of the remaining 12 drivers at the other six teams that, that we haven't talked about, Renault, Force India, Toro Rosso, Sauber, Haas, and Manor, only Nico Hockenberg has a contract for next year. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a chance for a lot of shuffling before the, the year is out. Um, and probably some new faces for 2017. It's going to be very interesting. Well, I hope we do get some new blood in 2017. I really do. Yeah. I mean, in some of the smaller teams, we typically do. I mean, Manor does one-year contracts. We've never seen them carry somebody over. Toro Rosso. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of movement at Toro Rosso. The way things are going with Daniel Kvyat... Um, there, there has been talk that Daniel's not going to make it through the season at this point, that they are not happy at all with Daniel. You know, he went down to to Toro Rosso, and the thought being you came down, as much as, yes, you were demoted from the big boys, you came down to that team, and Carlos Sainz has been eating his lunch. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah, that's that's unfortunate, but it's the problem with the – and I mean, I guess I, in a way, I kind of thought they brought Kvyat up too soon. But yeah, and we were saying that we were saying that quite, but we were also saying that Max was brought up too soon, also. Well, I thought Max was brought into <laughs> Formula One entirely too soon. I mean, he's obviously a very good driver. My biggest concern on Max, I mean, this is just, I think this is the mom in me that comes out a little bit. <laughs> My biggest concern on Max is that he's only eighteen. Yeah, and. He has the potential of going a little crazy, and there's there's an occasional maturity issue. And yeah, and I see those little glimpses of you know you're not as mature as your counterparts, and it shows. And I think that that if he can control it and ride the edge of pushing it, he'll be phenomenal. But if he pushes it too far. I think we're going to have either, you know, I think we're going to get to that situation. That he's either on the podium or he didn't finish race. Yeah. And that's what I think we're going to wind up with. And the other thing that I'm concerned with is because he started so young, where's the burnout point? Or are we going to wind up with somebody that's in the sport for 20 years? I, and- I think there you watch Vettel. Because Vettel also start. I mean, Vettel was the previous youngster. Mm-hmm. And... Vettel started in a similar path. I don't think he went up quite as quickly, but he's been now in Formula One for quite a while, and he's not going anywhere. Right, but I think at some point you start to get to that point where you say, okay, you've been a driver for 20 years. That means that you're holding a seat. You know, there's some young blood that's going to get passed over in the next decade because Max is holding a seat. But as long as a driver produces and as long as a driver is successful, they stay in the sport. I mean, that's what's happening with Jensen. It's definitely what's happening with Fernando. Mm -hmm. It's what's happening with with Felipe and and a couple other – and even Kimi. So – Well, and Kimi took a break. Keep in mind, Kimi was not been in the sport constantly. True. For all of those years. Well, he was forced out. Yeah. Unceremoniously, much like Michael Schumacher was. Right. So, anyway. Moving on. Silly season is not just for drivers, though. 
Renault has apparently approached Ferrari F1 technical director James Allen in an attempt to re-sign him. Because originally he worked for Renault. Right. Left Renault, and actually I think he was working for Lotus, left them to go work for Ferrari. Renault's trying to get him back. Oh. We miss you, man. <laughs> um, it's going to be kind of interesting to see what happens with this because there were also rumors running around that he could be the next team principal for Ferrari, possibly replacing Maurizio Arriva Bene. They would not have an Italian team principal in Ferrari? Chew on that one for a while. It wouldn't be the first time. Jean Todd was originally a team principal over at Ferrari. Okay. And he's French. Right. So it not necessarily unusual wouldn't be unprecedented. Okay, but every team principal for Ferrari that I have known here recently have all been Italians. Yeah. Um, so we don't know whether or not, uh, at this point, we have not heard anything that James Allen Allison is moving. Mm-hmm. But it seems that uh, Renault has approached several other teams and is making attempts to poach personnel. Oh, well, they obviously need people, huh? Yes. So, you know, speaking of Renault, let's talk about Monaco. And I mention Renault because we tend to get our circuit facts from Monaco. Yes. So we're going to go over them really quick, even though, you know, we're well past Monaco already. Um, the lowest starting position for a winner was 14th. And one of the things that Sky Sports like to mention is there was a race in Monaco where only four drivers finished. And this was the 20th anniversary of that race. Yes. There's a 48% chance of a safety car, and we definitely saw it this year. Um, 28 winners from pole. And just in general about Monaco is that the principal, Principality of Monaco is the second smallest nation after Vatican City. It's roughly the same size as New York's Central Park. Monaco's total area is only two square kilometers, or 1.24 square miles. It is, however, the second most densely populated country in the world. During weekdays, a helicopter lands in Monaco's helipad every 20 minutes. Roughly 47% of the Monaco population is French, the next largest groups being Italian and then British tax refugees. People native to Monaco are called Monagasque, a person born in a foreign country but resident in Monaco is a Monacoan. Interesting. I have some more. Okay. Okay. So you you stole my second smallest country ah. with the second densest population. <laughs> However, did you know that 48,000 people commute to work in Monaco from France and Italy every day? I heard something about that because, you know, Monaco is so ridiculous to live in that nobody can afford it. Right. But 48,000, only 37,000 people live in Monaco. It doubles the population on every work day. How many people do you think it takes to actually go and staff the casino and all the restaurants and clean the apartments? Well, <laughs> okay. <clears throat> now, just rough numbers. Do you have any idea how much the seating for the Monaco Grand Prix weighs? Weighs. Weighs. I was thinking cost, but weight, I have no idea. 11,000 <coughs> tons. Wow. I don't want to know that in translations of masses. 
Um, a lot of mosses. It's a lot of mosses. To transform the streets of Monaco into a circuit takes 33 kilometers of safety rails, 20,000 square meters of wire catch fencing, 3,600 tires for barriers, and 11,000, I'm sorry, 1,100 tons of grandstand seating. Wow. Even at 1100, it's still insane. And, and of course, you know, what, what's truly amazing about it is that, yeah, they set up all the race stuff and everything there. And when the race is not going on and when they're not doing various other support stuff for the races, it's, okay, pull these barriers aside and, and traffic drives on the streets. Yeah, they pull because that the, aside. Because the city has to keep functioning and it's so small that they, they have no choice. Yeah, and... The uh, the thing that gets me is that there is an entire building in the middle of the Monaco Grand Prix, which is the Royal Box, mm-hmm. which is an entirely temporary structure. Well, just the boxes and race control, that which is the new building. Right. That's the, the but that's where they put those things are. I think they're the same building. No. Um, but that's that big white building where they do the podium ceremony because they can't even get the podium that transfers. Two different. They're, they're different buildings. Oh, okay. the, the Royal Box is on the other side of the street. The new race control building, which they were they were doing the flyovers uh, during the race, that is just after the pit lane. Okay. That's also a temporary structure, though. Yeah, but it's like a two-story temporary structure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. All the pits are, are temporary as well. All the pits are, and to bring stuff in, all the big uh, trucks for all of their stuff is like yeah, seven miles away. The, the teams essentially get an appointment yeah. that they get to bring their trucks in and specific trucks in, unload what they need, then the trucks go out. But the majority of their structure is outside of the city mm-hmm. because there's just no room for it. Well, when you only have uh, the size of Central Park to do your entire race and have all of those people. All right. So the Monaco Grand Prix as a race. It was an outstanding race. Once again, as people like to, to complain and moan about Monaco, this one didn't live up to their complaints at all. Well, you know, I've always said this. When people start really getting complainy about the racing in F1 and they start talking about this is processional and this is processional and taxi driving. It's taxi driving and all of those types of things. It's amazing how fast formula one turns around and shows up an actual race. And this one met the qualifications of being an actual race. All year we have had good. We've just had a string of really good races. We truly have. Um, for starters, let's just, you know, qualifying Daniel Ricardo with a smoking lap. Whoa. Taken pole, and this looked like it was going to be more of the same coming from Mercedes, and in particular, Lewis Hamilton. Right. Not any fault of Lewis, but it's just one more thing has broken on the car that we expected to be bulletproof. Right. I mean, for testing, and that's what I hear the commentators talk about. Testing, they were bulletproof, they were bulletproof, they were bulletproof. But that's testing, and... Quite frankly, I think we need to get over this idea that testing translates into racing. It just, it, it gives you ideas. It gives you points. It gives you help. But it's not a direct transfer. Well, but the thing is, though, if your testing regimen for the, the preseason was essentially run it as far as you can to see what it would take to break, and you run it as far as you can, and it stuns everybody with its reliability— 
you would expect that reliability to carry over into the season when conditions aren't quite as arduous because you're not doing eight right the equivalent of eight race distances on the same power plant consecutively well i understand that part but i still say that it there there's just too many variables there's just too many but yeah they've had some reliability issues coming out of um the spanish grand prix where both of them didn't finish um this was a this was a race that they needed prove something and do it yeah and to have a qualifying like that was i honestly saw in the interview um with lewis at qualifying that i thought he was we were back to 2009 lewis i thought we were moody surly moody surly lewis the the temper tantrum of lewis i really didn't see i don't think it was quite that far but yes um Again, if you watch the Sky Sports coverage with Johnny Herbert, who was on the truck that was doing the driver parade, Lewis was off by himself. He, and apparently that's normal. It, it seems to be, but he definitely looked kind of sulky and upset, and Johnny called him on it. And he, he's like, no, I'm fine. I'm, I'm you know, top of the world, man. This is awesome. But, yeah, it kind of looked like if there was somewhere else he could have been, he would have rather have been there. Yeah, it was it was weird. Um but you got to kind of figure it. Monaco is so known for if you're on pole, you're you know, it's your race to lose and he was third. So it would have taken two people to have a problem yeah. for him to have gotten moved up. And then there was this big wild card of rain. There was that. There was also and and, and let's talk about the the first disappointment of the race you know there was a lot of thought that especially coming out of barcelona that ferrari was finally figuring it out yeah and that they were going to come on strong and they were going to do awesome and then we end up with kimmy putting it into a wall (laughs) in lap one (laughs) which Maurizio arriva benning he um he says that well the reason why Kimmy didn't do well in Monaco is because he just doesn't like the track. Ah, well, if you don't like it, then you can get away with not doing yeah, well. Yeah, isn't that how he, he just, he didn't like it. So, you know, he didn't, he didn't, didn't really drive it very well. No. I'll tell my boss that the next time I don't do something because I just don't like to do it. I don't like to do paperwork, so I'm not going to do it. But the, the cars qualified in fifth or sixth. Kimmy didn't finish the lap. Kimmy almost got, or, or didn't finish the race, almost got himself in a whole heap of trouble. Mm. Um, and I think that there were a lot of former drivers who were actually calling for Kimmy to get some, at least a reprimand for what happened there. Um, although it's not entirely clear that he knew the extent of the damage and that he was in as much trouble as he was. Um, but yeah, there was that. And even Seb didn't do particularly, particularly well. No. So there was that. Then... There was, of all places, the guy who has had the most consistent success in recent history in Monaco, Nico Rosberg, struggling to figure out what was going on. He was having problem with his car, with the tires. I've heard tire temperatures. I've heard brake temperatures. I've heard, heard it was both. this. I've heard that. But he couldn't get it put down on the 
the track. It just couldn't in, happen. In a nutshell, he, he came out and he said, and even the team has come out and said that he he just could not get the confidence in the car and that it was going to perform and do what he wanted it to do. And as a result, he was driving slowly or slower than normal, we should say. Mm-hmm. The problem was he was in second at this point. <laughs> now, the team and Nico wisely recognized that what was best for the team at this point with Nico struggling, while yes, it wasn't great for Nico's championship lead, was to let Lewis pass. And Nico did it. I was very impressed. I thought that that took grace and um, it, it was it was the man thing to do. He did it. Well, there there are two big schools of thought. Yeah, there are some that are saying the team said do it, and he was obviously struggling, and if he didn't let Lewis go, he was handing Red Bull the win. And, and they're right. If he did not let Lewis go the way things were happening, he was handing Red Bull the win because nobody would have been able to, to pick up enough time to, to catch up to Daniel. Right. However, there's also a lot of former drivers, in particular championship and race-winning drivers, who have come out and said the exact opposite. And that, you know, this is back to the Nico of last year and the year before, where he was not aggressive, where he would step into the back whenever asked, and was not willing to fight for position, was not willing to fight for his wins for anything, and just kind of rolled over whenever. And if you're going to win a championship, that is not the behavior that you take. And that if Lewis was in the same position, Lewis wouldn't have let Nico through. That's what they're saying. I don't know. He 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 had a, a problem with his car. I don't think that I don't think that Nico thought he was going to finish the race. Honestly, that may have been. I think that's why he went on and let him through because he was acting all for the world like this needed to be a retirement. That I don't know. I mean, we didn't hear any radio communications between them. We don't know what was being said. He did finish the race. I would assume that if Nico was saying that this is ridiculous, we need to throw in a towel, the FIA would have broadcast that radio message. Mm-hmm. So I just, I don't know. Well, we don't know those conversations, but it's just my, and it's my theory. This is this is nothing more than my theory. But I think that in his mind, he was having enough trouble that he thought he was retiring. And you might as well, at that point, I'm not going to make it through anyway, so I might as well let... Lewis, take the take the fight to Red Bull because I can't take the fight to Red Bull. It maybe, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but that was my theory. And then there was probably the biggest disappointment of the entire weekend, and that would be what happened at Red Bull. The second pit stop you're talking about. Well, if you ask Daniel Ricardo, it was. It was their pit stops in general. Right. Yes, the second pit stop was absolutely, without a doubt, incredible. In a bad way. In a bad way. (laughs) But he also didn't like the first pit stop either. He didn't think necessarily that they should have been brought in, especially when Lewis stayed out there. Now, post-race analysis, one of the things that had been discussed was – at the time that Daniel was brought in, yes, the rain had stopped. 
-hmm. The track was still rather wet. He probably could have continued to run on the wet tires just like Lewis did and, and, and match that performance at that point. But if the track had continued in, in a direction it was going, that it was drying, it was getting drier and then started to rain again, the inters would have been the right option. Right. Because at that point, he had fresh inters that he could have stayed out there as the weather got worse, where with the worsening weather, Lewis would have been sitting there on used wets and would have had to have come in at that point. Mm -hmm. And at that point, also, the ultra soft gambit that they played wouldn't have worked at all. Right. So that that's, that's what there has been a talk that that first pit call, as much as Daniel didn't agree with it because it put him on the back foot and it put Lewis ahead of him at that point, didn't put Lewis far and away ahead of him, but but it gave Lewis the start of a lead there. Daniel felt was wrong, although it was a gamble, just like the gamble that they had made the day before. Right. I mean, I, we should back up and talk about that gamble too because it didn't come to fruition the way I think Red Bull had hoped, mm -hmm. but because of the rule that you use the tires that you set your fastest lap on Actually, and, came up the, exactly the way they wanted. Well, except no, they started on wet tires. Right, but the the whole the idea was they put him on the it was the super softs I believe he qualified right. off of. The thought was let him burn a blistering lap on those super softs. Yes, they were used super softs at that point, but if it rains the next day, he then does not have to use those burned out super softs. He can go to new tires whenever they get to shift to dry tires. Otherwise, the requirement would have been that he would have had to have started on those used super softs, which would have left him at a disadvantage. Except for if they had a dry race, mm -hmm. the original plan was, keep in mind, everybody else was qualifying on the Snuggle Bear tire. Mm -hmm. He was on a harder compound. Yes, he put a blistering lap yeah. down on the harder compound, but the theory being that that harder compound could last longer, the idea was he was able to put a pole-setting lap on harder tires, he could go longer in a dry race the next day than those used ultra-softs that everybody else was on. So the thought was that he, if he could be out there for two more laps than everybody else coming in and pitting, he had that much more time to yeah. build. That was, the, that was the first gambit they played, and that was a risk. But I got to tell you, had they been a dry race, they would have been nominated for brilliance mm -hmm. because – he put he put a pole setting lap on car, on tires no one else was using, just about, and and, and that, nobody at the front at least nobody at the front was doing that. So I thought that was that was brilliant. Anyway, we got that piece. Then of course, then it starts to rain and they all have to start under a safety car with the wet tires. Once you use wet tires, you are no longer required to use two combinations. You use whatever of is needed. You use whatever you can. So, the Mercedes strategy turned into a very risky strategy yes. that just happened to work. But everybody else in the field was switching over to enters. The track was drying. Mm -hmm. It was the logical and uniformly thing that the racing community would do. It'd go from wets to enters. Because they knew, and they had been talking about it on Sky Sports, that yes, the track will start to dry, but then the tunnel becomes wet because yes. they've dragged all that water through the tunnel and that won't dry. So there's going to be a crossover period where 
the tunnel's going to become very dangerous. Well, the, the tunnel becomes an issue when it's when it's raining because you end up with your wet tires that you're running through the rain, and then you hit the tunnel that's dry, and the, the tires heat up like they're not supposed to heat up. Right. And it becomes an issue in that direction, and then once it starts drying, it goes the other direction and becomes an issue. So it's, it's an issue. Yeah, it's it's an issue all the way around. So that piece of that strategy that Toto even said in post race was they were talking all the way through. Lewis felt like he had the wet tires were lasting a little bit longer. He wasn't dropping lap time. He was willing to take the risk to not switch over where everybody else was thinking they hit the crossover point to enters. So that made sense. And if you looked at it. And stopped the race right then. Mm-hmm. You would have said, that's a really risky yeah. strategy, Lewis. You're on the slower tire and older tire. But okay, yeah, you're leading the race right now. So let's see where this goes. Well, there's that. There's also you've got 30 some odd laps left in that race on the softest tire possible. 42. Or, I thought you did 38. 42. 42, okay on the softest tire possible that they have never run before in a race situation and don't fully know how well it can survive and how long it survive at a track that is typically a one-stop race. Exactly. So, and I don't even know if when they, when they saw Daniel come in and take on the enters <clears throat> and decided to leave Lewis out, that they knew they were going to, put him on the snuggle bear tire later i don't know if they even thought that through yet but he was hanging on the wet the wet tires and was waiting for the crossover point to slicks and when you think of of risky strategy but brilliant strategy mercedes had it hands down yeah they reduced that race down to a one stop lewis drove phenomenally well and yes I don't want to discount how well uh, Daniel did because he drove phenomenally well. Even with the extra pit stop, he was constantly in Lewis's mirror. He was hounding Lewis with the exception of the last two races, and I think that's because he realized that he just was not going to get past at that point and pulled back. Yeah. Otherwise, he was up there with Lewis just about every single lap. And, and pushing, and pushing hard. And so that leads us to that next pit stop where lewis comes in finally for slicks and they put snuggle bear tires on his car which yes we go back to it was a risk but we're gonna go for it Mm -hmm. um and somebody briefly had an offhand comment that i heard which was one of the reasons that they thought it was safe to use the snuggle bear tire for the distance was because the track was still a little damp and it would keep the tires cooler lengthening yeah, there it's was that possibility. That degrading the, time. The overall track temperature was cooler because of the rain and everything else. The problem is also, though, with the track is cooler like that, it's hard to get the heat in the tires to make them work. All right. But they managed to pull it off. Red Bull pulled in Daniel at that point in response to – we know for a fact this was in response to Lewis's call. And we saw Red Bull do something that honestly – I can't. If this was to happen at any team, at all, at any point in the season, Red Bull's not the team I would have guessed that something like this would happen to. No. Um, now we've learned a little bit, and just sort of that newbie thing that to share. 
Monaco's pit situation is incredibly different than any other um, pit situation anywhere else. We've already talked about the density. We've already talked about how small things are. There is no pit wall. So where the people that are calling the race and looking at all the telemetry and all of that is normally on the wall right up against the race. And they can look back in their pit garage and scream if they have to to talk to the guys that are putting doing the pit stops. There, there can be yelling in either direction. Um, Teddy Kravitz over at Sky actually walked through, after the race, the whole sequence of how this worked mm-hmm. um, and, and how it would normally work, is that normally you've got your, your team of mechanics sitting in a garage, and we've all seen the shots inside the garage of that video wall that, that a lot of the teams have. That's their first indication that somebody's coming in, who's coming in, what tires they need, all of that stuff. They get their indication on there in a series of lights and other messages that gets them moving. What happened here was that there was a late call changing the tires that they were going to slap on Daniel's car. The problem was the tires that they, because this was an out-of-sequence tire, and, and they don't... It's still not completely clear as to how it worked out this way. But because it wasn't the original plan for their tires and their strategy, what they were going to go to, the tires that they needed weren't in as accessible location in the garage. How that's possible, I'm not completely sure. Because I would assume that you would be able to, within a lapse time, yank out whatever tires you need for whatever the strategy call was. So I don't know if that strategy call just came too late or what. But in a normal race situation at anywhere but Monaco, if there was confusion on a tire, and there was apparently some degree of confusion as well as to what the plot, if there was confusion on the tires because the, the there were the, you'd have the pit wall right in front of you, there could be yelling between the two, there was the radios between the two, all of those things were gone. Because what is essentially on the pit wall is actually upstairs above right. the garage. And in this case, they can't see what's going on inside the, the garage, where on the pit wall, somebody can always turn around and watch and see. Right. So that led to the, the bits of the confusion, and then the tires weren't there, and he wound up in the pit for 19 seconds, which should have been a three-second pit. And truly, if he had even been in the, the pits for 10 seconds, he would have come out of the pit lane ahead of Lewis. Yeah. Um, and we would have had a completely different race. So, in summary, this is my whole thing. And as it, I, I've said this to Michael so many times that, honestly, I think that he's going to roll his eyes when I say it one more time. I have listened to every commentator and everybody talk about, you know, it was Red Bull lost that race for Daniel, and they, mm-hmm. they did. And there's no doubt in my mind that he should have won the race had all the pieces gone his way, but they didn't. But what it discounts when you say it that way is it makes it sound like Red Bull put that trophy and wrapped a little bow around it and handed it to a lesser driver. And uh, that he wasn't as good or as on point as Daniel was that day. And I, I want to make the point that Lewis drove an outstanding race. He did. And there he, were good strategy calls. And 
He was able to do it with the support and great strategy of his team. They were flawless in very many ways, and Red Bull was not. And that is, by definition, racing. Yeah. And sometimes you can do, you as a driver can do everything right, but your team lets you down. And that's what Daniel's having to deal with right now. But at the same time, Lewis and his team did everything right. And that's what wins the trophies. And I don't want to make it sound like Lewis didn't drive an absolutely phenomenal, perfect race. Because he did. He did a very good job on his race. And Daniel had a very good race when he was not hampered by his team. And that's what gets you second. Yeah. So that's my commentary. Red Bull has made changes to their pit lane operations and to their strategy software because they've even acknowledged that maybe their strategy wasn't the best. So we'll see where that goes. Daniel was so ticked off at the team, it was apparently about three days before he spoke to them. Mm -hmm. And when he did speak to them, he basically wanted them to explain every step, every piece, everything that went wrong. Yeah. Um. He's such a nice guy. I mean, he's always so happy. And the guy rolls with so much. He's the guy you want at your party. I mean, truly, <laughs> he's the guy that you you want to show up for dinner with the wine bottle in his hand and say, hey, and sit down and have a beer with. He's that kind of good guy. He, he's apparently the guy that um, if the drivers are doing something with somebody, it's almost always Daniel. Right. And for that stamp, from that standpoint alone, I, my heart broke for him. My heart, you know, you, you don't want to see something happen like that to somebody that you like so much. If it had happened to Pastor Maldonado, I'd be like, yeah, awesome. <laughs> but that's not who it happened to. And so it's more heartbreaking because it happened to such an incredibly nice guy. But as a personal Lewis fan, yay! <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll see how, what if any impact that has on Lewis this weekend with Montreal happening. And he did take pole at qualifying. So we will see where that, he took pole at qualifying and he wasn't happy with the lap. This is one of those laps. You know, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. I've got some facts from Renault on Montreal. Well, start your facts on Renault, okay. and then I will do my facts on Renault. The lowest, uh, not on Renault, on Montreal. On Montreal, okay. The lowest starting position for a winner was 10th, with the average starting position for the winner being 3rd. Pole is not a guarantee for victory in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, highest G-force at turn 5 for 1.5 seconds is 3.4 G. Um, some facts about the track. Montreal is the toughest challenge of the year so far for the power units. The long straights demand maximum power for just over 60% of the lap. The longest straight on the circuit is the Droit du Casino at 1,064 meters, and top speed will be in excess of 330 kilometers per hour, which is the highest speed seen this year so far. Nine of the 10 corners are taken at less than 150 kilometers per hour, but each of them is quickly followed by a stab on the throttle. The rapid braking acceleration sequence calls for accurate power delivery and good turbo response. 
the hairpins at turn 10 and turn 2, plus the chicane leading into the wall of champions, are extremely heavy braking points. Engine braking as well as literal braking is necessary to slow the car to a low of just 60 kilometers an hour. Wow. There's a 50% safety car probability. There have been 20 winners from pole. Um, the lap record, which we almost beat in qualifying today, was set by Rubens Barrichello in 2004. is 1 minute 13.622 seconds. And we were close to breaking it this weekend. Yeah, Lewis was uh, 13.8? Yeah. Okay. So are you ready for mm -hmm. Williams's facts? A little cross-sport action here. Apparently, the Montreal Canadiens are the most successful team in NHL history with 24 Stanley Cup wins. They are also one of the original six NHL hockey teams. Okay. However, Montreal is the fourth largest French-speaking city in the world. I believe that. And I think I had heard that. They're, they're, they're like right behind Paris. Um, sort of. Paris is not first, however. Right. Which really was shocking. Paris is second. Um, the largest French-speaking city in the world is Kinshasa. Okay. In Zaire. In Zaire. I was going to say, I don't know where that is, but that's why I need you. <laughs> um, and let's see. The, there's a limit on height placed on every building in Montreal. And the limit is based on that no building can be higher than Mount Royal. Oh, cool. Um. And Montreal has several sister cities, including Paris, Milan, Shanghai, Hiroshima, Manila, um, and Dublin will soon be added to the list. I, How many sisters does she need? Yeah, I know. That's a pretty big group. Um, their last fact is about Valtteri, whose best qualifying result is in his debut season, came at the Canadian Jam uh, GP, where he was third behind Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton driving next to Pastor, and it was a wet qualifying, too. He stunned yes. everybody that, that yes. year. Um, but the last piece of information that I would like to share okay. that is great news that we should congratulate um, Williams's deputy team principal, Claire Williams. Okay. She has received the OBE. Oh, wow. For her contributions and services within F1 from the, in the Queen's birthday celebrations honors list. Very cool. So I think we have to call her Sir Claire now. No. She's not knighted. <laughs> OBE is the Order of... Order of the British Empire. I didn't think that was the same as a knighting. I thought that's what Christian Horner got. I didn't think he was knighted either. Well, I think Christian Horner got an OBE too. I think Frank has been knighted. Sir Frank is Sir Frank. He's See? definitely been knighted. And Jackie Stewart. He's Sir Jackie. So, moving on. Yes. We're going to look a little into the future. Next week, and, and I don't know how this is going to work for the drivers. Next week, we go from Montreal to Baku, Azer Azerbaijan, going forward nine hours. Yeah, it's a nine-hour time difference between the two races. And from my understanding, the way just the, the flight routes work, they're going to need the better part of the week just to fly to Azerbaijan. Won't they take private jets? Some will. I don't think all will. Well, Manor's going to have to take, you know, a pedal car or something. M Manor is going to be on 
Southwest Ryanair, and I don't know Easy what jet. they're doing across the Atlantic because there's nobody doing cheap flights across the Atlantic. But yeah, <laughs> EasyJet and Air Baku or whatever <laughs> it is. But uh, you you add that not only is there going to be that big nine hour time difference that they've got to sort out and that huge amount of travel on a brand new track that nobody's ever driven on with. I don't know if you saw the pictures of the the Castle Gate area that we already knew was going to be narrow. I'm not sure I want to drive a passenger car at 25 miles an hour through that spot, given from what it looks like in those pictures, let alone a Formula One car. What did the, the track walk said that that was only wide enough for two cars? Supposed width. to be like seven and a half meters wide which is enough that two cars can fit, and there would be space. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. I think that's going to be dicey. That might be dicey. But, um... So it should be a race to watch. Yes. Um, yeah, I think we're going to have some tired drivers. But outside of that, you know, Baku is not exactly known for its human rights record. Well, and for treating people rain. well. So the group Sport for Rights, which is a coalition of international organizations um, that are hoping to draw attention to Azerbaijan's human rights record and apparently does not know anything about Bernie Eccleston or Formula One management for that matter. They have called on F1 and Bernie Eccleston to take a stand against Azerbaijan. <laughs> Good luck. Obvi- obviously, they know nothing about Formula One's stance on human rights in general, but typically what they will do when there is a human rights situation in a country, which is, for the most part, ignore it. Well, yeah. As long as the country can pay Bernie, all is good. He's never heard of any issues otherwise because they can pay him. Well, the the only time that Bernie will step in and intervene in such a situation is when the rioting and the protests put the race itself at risk because that's why they canceled Bahrain that one year is because the protests were so bad that they didn't believe that the the local government could ensure the safety of the circuit and the drivers. Otherwise, for the most part, he don't care. Yeah. Bernie, Bernie don't give. Yeah. Nope. So I just thought I would throw that out there. And then our last story, because I know we've been running long. We had like two weeks to catch up on. I know. People have missed us. Our, our last story, you know, I, I, I really like these stories showing that technology and developments in F1 move out of the sport. Yes. You know, we've heard about Williams and their refrigerated cases and the work that they did with aerodynamics to, to – make more efficient refrigerated cases and working with the hospital a couple of weeks ago f- to help their neonatal intensive care unit respond to incidents. But that was pretty cool. Yeah. Pit crew style response. Yes. Well, McLaren is actually marketing technology that they have developed for car design and development. Um, they have worked very hard to develop their simulator systems so that not only can they go in and reflect performance, but overall do full design work for a car 
in a simulator. They've done this with their production cars already. They're now looking to market that to other car manufacturers for road car production in general so that full design and development work of a car can be done in the simulator and reducing your the overall design and development costs for road cars. You're going to put all of those clay artists out of business. I don't think completely they're going to do that. I think this is more the how much running they do on the various test tracks and other weather and those kind of simulations. Ah, okay. So you, you still need the, the clay artists to build the fake cars for the displays. <laughs> well, okay. But as Michael had told me when he told me about this story, your next car could be designed in a simulator. Yes. So that's all we've got this week. Remember, we are in between. As we record this, we are in between, and I might—I actually even get this up before the race. Wow! But we are in between race sessions, so Sunday afternoon, enjoy the race in Montreal. Could be very interesting. It sounds like the weather is going to be um, wet, as it was out in uh, Monaco. That always provides a good race. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have people up at the front that this is their favorite tracks. It's. Lewis won his first Grand Prix there. Um, Button loves this track. We have great people that love the track, which obviously increases performance, as we've seen that Kimmy doesn't like Monaco, therefore he doesn't perform. So on that note, I think we'll remind you, go ahead and uh, check us out over on Facebook and check out the webpage over at www.theblokeandabird.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Monaco. Um were the strategy calls did they make sense was red bull just insane all of that stuff but on that i think we'll call it a show we are so glad you came bye 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 now bye 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 remember please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle thank you okay bye bye now bye 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 <laughs> okay are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. 